Macworld Podcast, number 36, April 19th, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Saruz Faravar. We've got a great show packed for you today. We've got an interview with uh, Macworld Senior Editor Rob Griffiths talking about uh, the latest updates with Boot Camp and dual booting and triple booting and quad booting and all kinds of wacky things that he's doing on his new Intel Mac. Also, later in the show, we're going to be having an interview with uh, Macworld Senior Editor Dan Frakes talking about some of the newest iPod gadgetry and gear that he's gotten his hands on, and and we'll check in with him and, and hear what he has to say. Uh, first off, I just wanted to kick off the show by talking a little bit about a little side project that I've been working on uh, on my own lately. There's been all this talk of, you know, the Intel Macs and Boot Camp and all that stuff, and it's really great. But, you know, I have to say, I've been really impressed with uh, some of the older hardware that I've had a chance to play with. My girlfriend got a G3 iMac, one of the original tray-loading iMacs recently, and um, I managed to install Tiger on it. Now, officially, this type of iMac doesn't support Tiger. If you actually go to the Tiger requirements page, it says that it requires a G3 processor, FireWire, and a couple other things. But these iMacs don't have FireWire, as you probably recall. Uh, Not to mention the fact that they don't have a DVD player, and Tiger usually comes on a DVD, although you can trade it in for CDs later. But the copy of Tiger that I have is on a DVD, Uh, So what did I do? One way to do it is to actually open up the iMac, take out the hard drive, put it into an enclosure, and then mount that enclosure onto a different Mac that has a FireWire drive. So that's exactly what I did. I had to turn the iMac over, unscrew it, figure out how to take the hard drive out, and it's quite a hassle, let me tell you. And I managed to get the hard drive into an enclosure, mounted that hard drive off of my iBook, then installed from a Tiger DVD to the iBook a copy of Tiger. And I put it back in the in the iMac. Uh, there's still a little tweaking I need to do. Um, the CD drive isn't quite flush up in the front of the case like it should be. But I booted it, and it works fine. Um, it's got about half a gig of RAM in there, and it works really well. I've been really impressed uh, that even, uh, you know, Apple's hardware that's, that's you know, five years old, can't even take uh, Tiger on there. You know, when I talked to some, some of my coworkers, they were saying, oh, you know, you should probably stick with Panther. That's a little bit of a, you know, better use for that older hardware and don't, you know, push it too much. You don't need Tiger. Yeah, I know, but, you know, I just kind of wanted to see if it would work. And I was talking with uh, one of our IT guys here at Macworld, and I was asking him if there was a technical reason why Tiger required FireWire, and he suggested that perhaps that it's not so much a hardware requirement, but more so just a marker, you know, sort of a landmark in Apple's hardware development that Apple can say, okay, if you don't have anything that has a FireWire port, then it's going to be difficult because, you know, you can't hook up a FireWire drive, you probably don't have a DVD player, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thought. I, I don't really know if FireWire is actually required. There is a program that I also used called Ex Post Facto, uh, which allows support for these older Macs that I did install. So I'm not sure if maybe that was the trick, but uh, I'd like to hear if anyone has any technical explanations as to what Tiger actually does really re- require uh, to boot. Just wanted to throw that out there. As I said, we're going to be checking in with Macworld Senior Editor Rob Griffiths to talk about Boot Camp and Parallels and all of the new updates that have been happening 
in the whole uh, Intel Mac and Windows on a Mac sphere. All right, Rob Griffiths, thank you for being on the Macworld podcast. You're welcome. Now, as as someone who is constantly willing to sacrifice his Mac to uh, the latest and greatest in, in software and hardware, um, we talked to you last time about the uh, boot camp software and, and you had installed it on, I believe, your Intel Mac Mini. Is that right? Uh, yeah. And since the last time we spoke, I guess a couple of weeks ago, has your experience changed in any way? Have you noticed anything about it that you didn't notice uh, on sort of your initial look at it? Uh, not at all, other than, I mean, it, it's it's very compatible, and it um, seems to run everything I've thrown at it. Um, I even plugged in, uh, I have an external mic that plugs in through an M-Audio interface, and I plugged that in and ran a program called Dragon Naturally Speaking, and it just worked. I mean, it's uh, pretty impressive. So it, it looks and feels and acts like XP, and um, it, you know, if somebody actually needs full XP compatibility, it certainly seems to be there. Now, there's been some reports online that there have been people who've been who've managed to triple boot their their uh, Intel Macs, so running a distribution of Linux, Windows XP, and the Mac. Uh, have you tried this at all? No, I'm uh, I'm not that brave. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I read those same reports and apparently it seems, it seems relatively straightforward, but, uh, the other problem I'm running into is just the amount of drive space on the mini is sort of limited. Um, and it, you know, it's a, it's a fairly destructive thing to go about partitioning and, and setting it up for three systems. So I've right now just got the, the two running on bootcamp. Well, yeah, everything that we've seen on, on, on our end, uh, uh, seems that Bootcamp has been been pretty successful. You've also managed to install a new program called Parallels on your Mac Mini. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's called uh, Parallels Workstation, and the company is Parallels, so it's a little confusing. But um, and it's it's a software program that just runs inside of OS X, but takes advantage of the the Intel chip has some hardware features that enable something called virtualization, which helps you run different operating systems as guest operating systems of of whatever one you're currently running. And so uh, Windows and Linux users have had virtualization solutions for quite a while. There's a product called VMware, and uh, Parallels actually makes a Windows and Linux product as well. But this is the first time we've had an OS X version of, of any sort of virtualization software. So uh, what, you, what it does is you install it, and it essentially lets you create little miniature virtual disks, much like you would with Virtual PC, and then you can install uh, any one of a number of operating systems on those virtual disks, and you can install as many as you would like. So you're not limited to sort of Windows XP Service Pack 2, which is one, one of the requirements of Boot Camp. So what operating systems did you end up installing? Um, right now I have, uh, it's running Windows XP, Windows 2000, uh, Debian Linux, and uh, Fedora Core Linux. And I tried to install Solaris, and it actually got all the way through the install, but then I couldn't actually make it run. And that's probably more a fault of me not knowing anything about Solaris than it is the, the programmer Solaris's fault. Um, so, what is that? F- I guess four four guest operating systems. So you're literally running four operating systems on top of OS X. Yeah, and you you could run them all if you have enough RAM. You can run them all at the same time. So you can you can open you know both Linuxes and both Windows and OS X and sort of have them all running at the exact same time, which is pretty amazing feat when you think about it. And they. Uh, the speed inside each of these, because they aren't emulation, they're they're virtualization. So you get amazingly good speed um, using Windows XP, for instance, inside the the Parallels program. Isn't anything like using Virtual PC. Uh, it's fast. Um, everything just kind of works. I mean, Word and Excel documents open in a half a second, and web pages load quickly, and software update runs smooth. I mean, it's a it's a 
different environment than what I remember from the virtual PC days. I was going to ask you, virtual PC uh, is an emulation program that emulates Windows in a Mac environment. Now, these are are more virtualization programs. Can you can you take us through some of the differences? Yeah, and, and I'm you know it's st- steps a little bit beyond the edge of my technical skill, but basically in the emulation answer, um, you know when we're running on a PowerPC chip, part of the slowness, well most of the slowness comes from the fact that you actually have to emulate the entire processor, uh, the Intel processor. Now we're running on an Intel processor, so we don't have to emulate it. And it includes hardware features that make it easier to do things like virtualization and separate the two operating systems from each other and give each one decent speed. So, you know, you don't have to emulate the chip, which I think is the the biggest sort of difference in speed. That's my educated guess based on what I've been reading. But the difference is night and day. I mean, I really can't explain it any better than to just say it's very usable. And if somebody told you that, you know, you had to run Parallels Workstation and boot into XP to run XYZ program, um, you probably wouldn't necessarily greet it with the groan you would back in the in the emulation days because you can actually have it running and be productive and you can command tab out of it and use your Mac and do everything else you want to do in OS ten and switch back in when you need to. Can you literally tell the Parallels workstation to use one chip for one type of operating system and one for say OS ten? I, I don't actually know the answer. I don't I don't think you can. I mean I think it's um essentially you just run the program and tell it what type of operating system you want to run and it creates the virtual environment for you and then you tweak a couple of variables if you want to give it some more memory or bigger hard drive and then you run the installer so i'm not sure how much control might be there for sort of the the, which cpu gets used um i didn't see anything but i haven't spent a lot of time digging around in the preferences now in the newest version of of workstation that was released yesterday they've now made it possible to to support multiple monitors, so you could have multiple OSs running in different monitors. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, and unfortunately I can't test that here. My Mini obviously only has one sort of video output, but it should be just like using multiple monitors in OS X. So you could, you know, toss one of your Unix installations on one of your other screens and just leave it running and not lose any workspace off of your primary display. And the uh, the other thing they enabled with the new beta is a full screen mode. So you can actually run um, the native resolution of, if you're on an LCD display, you can now run the native resolution of your display and enter full screen mode, and it gets rid of the parallels, sort of has its own interface that sits around your window. And in full screen mode, that goes away, and the Mac menu bar goes away, and it looks like you're sitting in Windows working. So, you know, sort of the, the devious end of my brain was thinking that if you're in an office environment where somebody tells you absolutely positively cannot use your Mac, uh, bring it in, run Parallels Workstation, put Windows on it, run it into full screen mode, and uh, somebody walks into the office or your cube area, you just command tab back into Windows, and you're in a full screen Windows environment, it looks like a Windows machine. Who do you see as a program like Workstation being really useful for as far as, I mean, you've installed, you know, four additional OSs onto your machine, but more sort of, you know, just to test it out and see if it actually works. But is there any conceivable reason why anyone would want to do this? Well, I certainly think like IT administrators and people that work in companies that have to support multiple operating systems um, might like the ability to run, you know, especially Windows 2000 and Windows XP side by side if they have users that have both. Uh, you know, a good way to keep keep current with one piece of hardware in your hand, carry around a MacBook Pro instead of carrying around two or three other things. And um, I think really the, you know, I don't think currently... I certainly don't think an everyday user needs to install four different operating systems or five or ten or, geez, you could probably put 20 on there. Um... But clearly, hobbyists might like to do it if you want to try Linux without the pain of buying a machine or 
formatting a hard drive or rebooting, you know, for forty nine ninety five, you buy Parallels and you download Linux and you install it and you can see what it's all about and see if it will help you, you know, serve web pages or whatever you wanted to do with it. So it'd be a good way to test things without having to dedicate a hardware box to it. But I think really the Parallels kind of the, the typical target user, at least in terms of the Mac side, I think is going to be somebody who works in an office environment, has a key piece of software that runs only in Windows XP, um, and where Boot Camp will certainly solve that problem, it's a real pain to reboot, obviously, every time you wanted to run that app. So with Parallels, you just create your little XP virtual machine and fire it up and do what you need to do, and uh, then go back to using OS X when you're done. It's a much simpler solution. Now, it's not as complete a solution as Boot Camp. You know, you, it doesn't have accelerated video, so you, you'll never use it. Well, never is a long time. You can't presently use it to play graphically intensive games. Um, and it also doesn't support sort of the, the hardware side of the, the environment. You, you know, you have a mouse and keyboard and networking, but if you try to plug in a USB joystick or a graphics tablet or something, it's, it's not going to work. All right. Well, Rob Griffiths, thanks you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us after I know you're busy installing many other operating systems on your Mac Mini. All right. Have a good day, and thanks for talking to you, too. Now we're going to change gears just a little bit, and we're going to check in with our good friend, Macworld Senior Editor Dan Frakes, um, who is one of our big iPod heads over here at Macworld. He is our go-to guy for all things iPod, and uh, he likes to get his hands on some of the latest gear, uh, cases, speakers, everything. And we're going to check in with Dan and see what he's got to tell us about some of the newest products available for the iPod. Dan, one of the first things that you were showing me earlier was the new Geneva iPod stereo, I guess. I don't know if it has a formal or name or, so- or something. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Oh, it's called the Model L. There's a Model L and a Model XL. And it kind of goes along the, the lines of the iPod Hi-Fi in that it's an all-in-one stereo system for the iPod with the dock on top. But they've kind of gone beyond that and said, you know, what if you don't have everything on your iPod? You want more of a traditional stereo. So it's a little bit bigger. It's got a built-in CD player. It's got a built-in FM radio. Of course, auxiliary inputs. You can plug your other sources into it. Uh, but it's still an all-in-one sort of a, a piano lacquer finished uh, system in available in black, red, or, or white. And there's, like I said, there's two sizes. One is a smaller one, the L. The XL adds two 8-inch subwoofers and a much bigger amplifier. But it's kind of a cool system in that you get your full home stereo system complete with CD player and radio uh, in a, a box that's not too much bigger than an iPod Hi-Fi or some of the other similar systems. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you if you could describe sort of the size of it compared to like an iPod Hi-Fi. What are the dimensions roughly of it? Well, it's, it, the L is about the same width as an iPod Hi-Fi, but it's probably about maybe five or six inches higher. And then it's also about six or seven inches deeper. So it's a bigger unit, but when you put it on its stand, it's got a nice brushed metal stand uh, and put it kind of back in the corner of a room. It it really looks very small compared to what you would think of a you know a full-size stereo system. The XL, on the other hand, is about twice as tall and looks like a huge... Uh, looks almost like a, a amp you'd find on a stage during a performance or something. And I think it's important to uh, to articulate for the listeners that this is like the iPod Hi-Fi, that this is an all-in-one unit. There aren't separate woofers and tweeters and so forth. How does that change the quality of the sound? Well, like the iPod Hi-Fi, it's got the sort of the, 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 the lower range drivers and the tweeters and everything in one unit. So you don't get quite as much stereo separation as you get with separate left and right speakers. You don't get a sound stage that you would get with a traditional stereo. On the other hand, uh, the Geneva does incorporate some technology, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, that's intended to widen the sound stage. And it, and it is a lot better than I expected. Uh, 
but yeah, you're never going to get sort of your, your, your perfect stereo imaging from a one-piece unit that you would get from a traditional stereo. Now, also, you've gotten your hands on a new Roku sound bridge. Tell us about that. Well, Roku's traditionally done uh, media, streaming media players, like sort of like Slim Devices Squeezebox, where you would hook up the system to your home network, and then it would play music from your computer. The SoundBridge radio is really a clock radio. It's kind of like a Bose Soundwave or a, um, a Boston Acoustics uh, receptor, where it's an all-in-one uh, clock radio with its own speakers, but it also has a Wi-Fi cart. So you can play AM, FM radio, you can play internet radio, you can play music from iTunes, and unlike the Slim devices, which require you to install a server on your computer, the SoundBridge actually uses iTunes sharing, so it's just as if you had another computer on your network with iTunes accessing a shared music library. So it's got a remote control, it's got your you know, wake, to, wake up in the morning or go to sleep at night, and it's kind of a cool little unit uh, if you're just looking to get music in, in a room and you don't want to have to buy a separate stereo system. Does it actually have a hard drive or some way to store the music, or does it have to receive it from some other source? It gets everything either over the air for AM or FM or over your network from your computer or from the Internet for Internet streaming radio. So it doesn't have any storage in and of itself. The last thing that we were going to talk about was a a new device um, from DLO. Tell us about that. Well, DLO, uh, actually at CES and Macworld this year, we had a bunch of vendors who were introducing iPod docks that would also let you browse your music on TV. A lot of the old uh, iPod docks, the older iPod docks, would let you navigate your music from across the room with a remote, but you, you would have to do it either from touch, you know, pressing skip forward or skip back, or actually go up and look at your iPod. The Home Dock Deluxe was the first one that we've seen that's actually been released that has a video output that when you plug it into your TV, a menu shows up on your screen. It looks kind of like the iPod's menu. So it has uh, genres and artists and albums, and so you can navigate your music. It doesn't navigate video, but it navigates music, and so we, are, we just got one of those in, and we're taking a look at that. What are your first impressions of it? We haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Uh, it doesn't look quite like an iPod's menus because it has a DLL logo, and they've done a few things that are uh, specific to their dock. So it's not like you get the iPod itself on the screen. But it is nice that you're going to be able to, to navigate your music and without having to walk across or without having to do it from memory. All right. Well, Dan Frakes of Playlist, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Chris. All right. Well, that about wraps up our show, show number 36, Down in the Books. Um, still waiting to hear on what Apple is going to do with these new iBooks or MacBooks or whatever it is that they're going to be called. I'm really waiting for these to come out because, you know, the second that they're available, I'm going to order myself one. I'm going to sell my existing iBook, even though I love it. But, you know, I do like to, uh, you know, keep my hardware as up to date as possible. For me, it's really worth it. You know, when you go and you buy a new Mac, they give you the option of buying the $300 Apple Care or whatever it is. Uh, for me, it's worth it to not buy the Apple Care and then turn around and sell my existing used Mac and then buy a new computer. That way I have a new warranty, I have a little bit of a software upgrade, and the difference in price is usually about $300 or $400. So for the money that you would spend on Apple Care, you can get a whole new computer and a new warranty and have all that kind of great stuff. So that's just sort of one strategy that I have uh, as far as buying uh, computers goes. So I'm really anxious to, to get my hands on one of these new MacBooks, or maybe they'll keep the iBook name, but it looks like they're probably going to be still called MacBooks. So I'm waiting for those, and uh, of course Apple is, is supposed to announce all of the uh, other lines uh, that are available to upgrade them with the new Intel chip, uh, the existing G5, 
and uh, all the others. Also, this week, Apple announced that they will be previewing uh, Mac OS 10 10.5 Leopard at WWDC, which will be happening uh, this summer in San Francisco. This is, of course, the Worldwide Developer Conference. Um, Apple has also announced hardware at this conference in the past. That was where the uh, PowerMac G5 was showed off, as well as the iSight camera. So we may see some new hardware uh, later on this summer. But as I said, I'm really gunning for the MacBook a little bit sooner than that. Again, thank you for everyone who's been writing in with email. Uh, I greatly appreciate it and all of your comments. Uh, please do send me email. My email address is cfaravar at macworld.com. You can, of course, leave comments up on our show notes. Um, please do leave, leave us a couple of comments. We do appreciate that. And as well, go ahead and check out our brand new Mac blog available at macuser.com. Also, I had mentioned that we're going to be doing some giveaways uh, later on coming up. Um, We are going to be giving away a couple of iPod mini cases as well as some brand new iTrips from Griffin. Um, And these are these are some really nice pieces of hardware that lets you play your iPod in your in your car radio. So we're going to be having a giveaway contest uh, probably next show. I will announce uh, the details for that. So just wanted to keep you alert uh, to what's been going on with all of those types of things. Again, all of our coverage available at macworld.com, maccentral.com, macos10hints.com, playlistmag.com, macuser.com are all of the websites that are available under the umbrella of Mac Publishing. So we encourage you to go and check those out. Signing off from San Francisco, this is Sarus Faravar for the Macworld Podcast.